I want you to try, as I read the portion of scripture that we're going to vamp on this morning most, folk, most, uh, mostly, to try to picture the story that Mark tells of these first days of Jesus' ministry. So try to image in your mind the countryside, the people, and the Lord among them. These are the words of the Lord. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. And with you, I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And when he was in the wilderness, 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, brother of Simon, casting a net, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with their hired servants and followed him. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed and they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new, a new teaching with authority. And he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his, frame, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately, they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons and the whole city was gathered together at the door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, 
while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. Let's pray. Lord, we have sung and prayed and asked for your presence. We have heard the truth again that you are able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. As Luke just said, we can never but only underestimate you. And so I pray through your Holy Spirit, Lord, I ask that you would, that your spirit would change lives this morning. Lord, that your spirit would work in such a way that, Lord, certain things and and certain people's lives would never be the same. because they see you and they see your truth in a way they haven't before and that you would deliver power for us to see your truth in a way we haven't before and to implement or apply or make commitments that are important in our lives that are rescuing and healing and fruitful and restorative and renewing. Whether we're young or old, new to you, or have been walking with you for a long time, whether we need something we've never seen before or we need something that we've seen for a long time, just renewed. Would you change our lives this morning through your word? And Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Thank you, God, that you hear this prayer in Jesus' name, amen. My message title this morning is an appeal to you to establish and protect your devotional life. An appeal to you to establish and or protect your devotional life. In his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which I haven't quite finished, but it's been wonderful, John Mark Comers argues that a a fundamental missing piece in the modern American church, and he's not the first one to argue this, but 
He's doing it in a fresher voice than maybe we've heard in a while or I've heard in a while. But he argues that a fundamental missing piece in the modern American church is the failure to understand that not only are we to follow Jesus' commands, but we're also to follow his way of life, his habits, his lifestyle. Comers doesn't mean that we should all be single. We should all be itinerant preachers. We should all begin that itinerant ministry after many years in carpentry, spend three years traveling Frederick and Gaithersburg and Germantown and teach the Bible full time and then end our life on a Roman cross. No, in his book, the chief focus of his call for us to observe and imitate Christ is our Lord's rejection of the pressure and the man-centered smothering demands of daily circumstance and instead to imitate Jesus' embrace not only of productive work and compassionate service, but to imitate his embrace of solitude and rest by spending generous amounts of time in prayer with his father and in study about his father. In other words, to put it maybe a little bit more accessibly for us, Comer is advocating strongly for the establishment and the protection of a robust devotional life. He goes into more than that. He talks about several different kinds of disciplines, like the Sabbath and simplicity. But his main focus, the point of the spear in his book, is, the, is what, what many of us historically, the closest thing we might call it is, is a quiet time. That personal engagement with God in his word and in his prayer Now, neither Comer nor the Bible give us a specific formula for a devotional life. You won't find a detailed list of instructions to be uniformly applied to every believer, like the specific instructions that the Levitical priests had for temple sacrifices. You won't find that. Get up at 6.30, spend 45 minutes starting in Psalms, then go to Proverbs, then move to the Gospels, and so on. Use a journal, dot, dot, dot. You won't find that in the Bible, and that's on purpose. And we can talk another time about all the good reasons for the Lord not giving us those kinds of specific direct instructions. But I think Comer is right to point out that if we, if we look at Jesus' life, we really can benefit from watching his pattern in the way that he protects and cultivates and nourishes his time alone with God. And it begs the simple question, why wouldn't we? Beyond Comer's analysis, we see in many other ways that not just by example, but by command, the scriptures call us implicitly to the establishment and protection of a devotional life. That, that is, time alone with God for prayer and reflection in his word is unmistakably seen implicitly in the principles and commandments of scripture. 
my own experience, which is very secondary, thirdly, fourthly, fifthly, to the testimony of the word of God, is that I have found that nothing changed my spiritual and emotional health after four years of being a believer whose emotional life was up and down and up and down and up and down, great extremes. Nothing changed that dynamic more than when I had a mentor, a, a kind of an aunt to our family, grab me by the spiritual lapels and tell me, hey, get in the Bible every day for 45 minutes. Read Psalm 33 and Psalm 32. Write your prayers down. Bye-bye. <laughs> I, was, I was a broken, struggling, impressionable, vulnerable young Christian full of deep emotional swings and a lot of fear. And she gave me a pretty simple recipe as if it was standardized in every Bible. Here's how you do it. Here's how you must do it. I didn't know any better, so I just started doing it. And of course, it wasn't the uniform prescription for every believer, but boy, it was what I needed at the time, and God really used it, and my life changed immediately. And people around me said, what happened to you? And all I could think of circumstantially that changed was I just started spending time every day with God that was meaningful and focused and intentional. I didn't really know a ton about what I was doing, And it hasn't been perfect, obviously. You know, if you know me well, you know that it, it's a challenge to maintain a devotional life, but I still see a correlation between my emotional wholeness and my experience of fellowship with God and the time and attention that I'm willing to give him personally in a devotional life. That's been my experience. But what I'd like to do now is, is go back to the Bible and unpack reasons that I think are reflected in scriptures for the establishment and nourishment and protection of time alone with God for prayer and his word. So I'm going to go through one, two, three, four points this morning about this. Four points. The first is this. Jesus gave himself repeatedly to time alone with God so we would do well to follow. Jesus gave himself repeatedly to time alone with God, my first foray into why we should protect, establish, and nourish a devotional life is because Jesus did. Jesus gave himself repeatedly to time alone with God. In the Gospel of Mark we read this morning, we see this unusual picture of Jesus from the very beginning we might see something if we stop and pause, and maybe you saw it if you tried to image it that we haven't noticed before. Mark shows us the Lord beginning his ministry with a baptism by John the Baptist. And then immediately, Mark tells us that Jesus, after his baptism, after the inauguration of his ministry, his launch party, Jesus gets whisked by the Holy Spirit into the desert or the Eremos, the wilderness, the alone place. His ministry doesn't start after baptism, with preaching and healing. His public life, God's announced, this is the Messiah, this is my son, and he doesn't go and preach, he doesn't go and heal. He goes away from everybody. He gets alone into the desert to start his ministry. Jesus goes out and has a 40-day quiet time. 
Now, he has a title bout with Satan coming up at the end of that quiet time. In Matthew, you see it clear. That battle with Satan happens at the end of those 40 days of fasting. And he's going to win that battle in round one with a crushing knockout before Satan even really gets to leave his corner. He's going to be on the mat and out. But before the match, Jesus spends 40 days alone with God in the wilderness. When the devil comes, Jesus is weak in his body. And for a long time, I thought like Homer did, that was Jesus trying to like make himself more vulnerable, to feel our temptations, et cetera, et cetera. But Comer has a different pr- perspective on it. And I, I really think it's credible, it's arguable, that Jesus' fasting and wilderness alone time was training. It was preparation. It was gearing up. It was fortification. That his denial of earthly focus and earthly sustenance was to optimize his spiritual focus and his spiritual dependence on the Holy Spirit's power. So that when Satan came, though his body was weak, his spirit was honed. His senses of God's word, his sense of his experience and nearness to God were acutely honed to beat all of Satan's scripture-twisting temptation and lies. And so Comer makes the point that we simply cannot ignore the preparatory nature of Jesus' time alone fasting before the Lord. His time alone was not an accident. It was training for a great spiritual battle. And we, as we go on in Mark, we see something significant. Jesus leaves the desert, and then Mark takes us into one, unless we're reading it wrong, it's arguable, that this is one whole day in the life of Jesus. Mark takes us through from morning at synagogue, afternoon at Peter's mother-in-law's house, into the evening when the whole town comes. So Jesus starts out going to teach at the synagogue. He casts out a demon there. He goes to Peter's mother-in-law's house for lunch, and he finds out she's got a fever, so he heals her there. Then that evening, he heals so many from the town that Mark tells us the whole town has come, and, and there's literally a megachurch ready to plant at that point. Everybody has seen Jesus teach and or deliver their sister, brother, aunt, mother, father, son, daughter, best friend, fiance, from demons, cancer, tumors. It's a ministry explosion. Much greater than anything we've ever seen. The whole town is there. And then Mark says, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed demons. The whole city was gathered together at the door. And after not like that, I, I would want to, I would want to do a couple of things. I'd want to go to sleep and I'd want to get refreshed so I could wake up and capitalize on the openness that was being created for gospel ministry. All these people have been healed by the power of God and now they must be more vulnerable than ever, more open than ever to the word of God and the truth of God. But what does Mark tell us Jesus does? He rises up very early in the morning while it's still dark. He's slowing down here to make sure we understand this is really early. And he departs 
and he goes out to a desolate place, Eremos, wilderness again. And there he prays. So Jesus just got back from over a month in the solitude of the desert, the wilderness. Mark gives us maybe one full day back in ministry. And what do we see Jesus doing again? He goes back out before sunrise to the wilderness to be alone with God again. When Peter and his disciples find him, Jesus has the discernment to know it's time not to go back and, and preach the gospel to all these people who are now open maybe to the gospel more than they ever have before. No, he says, I've met with my father. We've spent a long time together. And I think what's wise now is to go to other cities and move on. But if we follow Jesus out to the other cities, watch what happens. Didn't read this part of the text. Oh, wait, no, no, I did, I did, I did. Maybe you caught this, maybe you didn't. A leper comes to him, Jesus moved with pity, he heals him, and this leper goes out and tells everybody about it and spreads the news. So, Mark says, Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but he was out, he went out. Where, guess where? The wilderness. He went out alone to the wilderness again. And people are coming to him from every corner. And he's, he's okay with them coming to him, but he, he's not okay going to them right now in this moment. So what did Jesus do to start his ministry in Mark? He goes to the wilderness to be alone with God for 40 days of spiritual preparation for spiritual warfare. He goes to the Eremos. What did Jesus do after the first full day of ministry in Mark? He goes to the wilderness to be alone with God. He goes to the Eremos, same Greek word. What did Jesus do after he leaves Capernaum and even hits the crushing crowds even more? He goes into the wilderness alone, the Eremos, same Greek word. Three times in chapter one, we see Jesus going to the Eremos. Do you know where John comes from? He comes from the Eremos. It's where he's preaching in. He's preaching in the Eremos. It's, it's crazy. It's all over that first chapter, that word, wilderness, alone, alone place. The word can mean desert. It can mean wilderness. It can mean a lonely place, an uninhabited place, a wasteland, quiet place. Point is, it's away from the crush. It's away from the crush of people and demands good and bad demands, reasonable and unreasonable demands. The point is, the Bible tells us many times in this chapter just once, but in many other places, Comer cites nine times in Luke, that Jesus seeks quiet places of solitude and rest away from the crush of ministry so that he could get alone with God and rest and repair and renew and refocus and then come back and engage the world that he came to serve. In fact, the way Luke 5 puts it, it gives me the impression that the bigger things got, the more Jesus sought that alone time with God. Listen to the way Luke says it. But the news about him spread even farther. <clears throat> but the news about him was spreading even farther and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Remember who we're talking about here. This is the Son of God. This is God, the Son. He has no sin. He will never sin. He is able to, with a command, stop storms, walk on water. 
He's able to, with the Holy Spirit's prayer, with, with a prayer to his Father, the Holy Spirit, raise the dead so he can ask God for help or he doesn't always ask God for help. He just does it or he gets God to help him do it. He, he has unbroken, perfect, constant communion with God Almighty in a way no one has ever had on this earth. He is always, 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 always walking by the Spirit with more dependence, trust, faith, power, than anyone in this world has ever walked. And constantly, always doing that. And yet we see Jesus deeming it essential, necessary for life and ministry again and again to remove himself from the crush, from the hustle, from the bustle of the most legitimate and the most competent and the most productive ministry this earth has ever seen. He gets out of Dodge again and again and again to be alone with his father. Brothers and sisters, if the son of God needed to languish alone with God regularly, sometimes all night long, at one juncture for six weeks, (laughs) why do we think we can get on by the fumes? of whatever is left for us and God after our workday is done or the paper or project is done or the dog is walked or our kids are fed and in bed or the TV show is duly binged out or the call of duty mission is finished or we've read the Facebook rage fest enough about BLM or Trump or vaccines or whether Britney should be freed from her conservatorship. And then we give God those leftover fumes sometimes, don't we? It's like maybe a... 40-second prayer before bed. We, well, the answer is we can't do that. Like, we can't live like that and expect to have a fruitful life and a healthy experience with God and with people. <clears throat> so my first point is simply that Jesus gave himself repeatedly to time alone with God, so should we. Number two, prayer and reflection, prayer to God and reflection on his word are implicitly commanded everywhere to us. Prayer to our father and reflection on his word are implicitly commanded everywhere to us. As I said, though we don't read in the Bible, every day have a one hour quiet time of starting with Psalms and then meditate this way and then cry. We don't, we don't see that intentionally, but we do read passages like this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Well, that's great. He's not in the, walking in the counsel of the wicked. He's not standing in the way of sinners. He's not sitting with scoffers and agreeing with them in their cynical arrogance. What's he doing though? He's not neutral. He's not just not doing stuff. Well, here's what he is doing. His delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. It doesn't say he's having a quiet time. (laughs) 
But it begs the question, how can you meditate on God's word day and night if you've never been looking at it? Like a lot. David says in the Psalms that I have hidden your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Well, it begs the question, how did his word get in that heart? He had to do something. I mean, after my third kid was born, my short-term memory went down to three seconds. I've called Kim Pam and Pam Kim every day of my life since I've met them, pretty much, together. But somehow, David focused and got that word of truth in his heart where he could walk away from the Bible and walk into the world and get in front of the computer screen and have it in his heart ready for that moment of temptation to sin and run to it inside here. But it had to start somewhere. It had to get in there somewhere. Like he had to make an intentional decision to put it in there somehow. Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. This is what Jesus said, quoting the Old Testament, fighting Satan as the perfect man. But it begs the question, how did Jesus know what words to say to Satan? How did he have the discernment to know when Satan was using God's word, he was twisting it? It, was it just because he was God? No, he was the son of man. He was a human being with, with willingly embraced human limitations of memory and lack of memory. And what enabled Jesus to constantly defeat his memory to his enemies, both human and spiritual, demonic enemies and Pharisee enemies? How did he, how did, what gave him, what enabled, equipped him to say to them again and again and again, it is written, or have you not read? Or, the scripture cannot be broken. And then quoting it. How did he know all the ways that he fulfilled the Old Testament when he walked with his disciples and walked them through all the scriptures that he says, oh, you foolish, hard-hearted brothers who are slow to believe all the scriptures that said about me. He expected them to know that when he came, it was him. Why would he have that expectation? And why would he be able to walk them through that? It doesn't say Jesus had this quiet time in this day, and did it, but he studied. He got before God's word and meditated and drank it in. So when he was on the road to Emmaus, he could talk to these guys about what was already in here. He spent time in God's word. The word himself, who became flesh, who knew the author very well, was the author, was the son of the author, he meditated on that law day and night, as the psalm says, because Jesus fulfilled the picture of the perfect man in the psalms. And so we are likewise commanded in Colossians 3 to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. But how can it dwell in you if you don't know it? And how can you know it if you're not giving meaningful time to it? Similarly, with prayer, we see this constant appeal in scriptures. First, descriptively, as we see from Genesis through Revelation, from Abraham through Jacob, through David, through the prophets, through Jesus, through Mary, and all the apostles, we see these lives of raw, dead, honest, desperate prayer. 
And we see those raw, dead, honest, desperate prayers reaching God's heart and being a means of God sustaining their spiritual life. So we see these examples. But then proscriptively, not just the description of examples, but by commandment, by precept, we're told again and again by Jesus to, I love this, this is a real phrase in the Bible. Jesus told his disciples a parable so that they would know to always pray and never give up. He told his parable so that we would always pray and never give up. And then he tells a parable on prayer. And in other places, he tells us, ask, seek, knock. And we know that the way those verbs are to function in our language is keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Don't give up. Don't stop. Jesus tells us to pray in secret because our heavenly father sees in secret We're told to come boldly to his throne so that we can receive grace and mercy to help in time of need. As James tells us analogously, and it could be real trouble for us if we don't go to that throne for the help we need. Because though Jesus and his father are overwhelmingly willing to give it, if we're not coming, we can't presume that we're going to receive it. You have not because you don't ask. Romans 12 says, be constant in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5 famously says, to pray without ceasing. Walk around all day long with an attitude of help, 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 thank you, help, thank you, help, thank you, help, thank you. Peter tells us to be clear-minded and sober. And if, if, if you wanted me to finish that verse, be clear-minded and sober, I would imagine he's saying so that we can live wisely and lovingly and make a good impression on unbelievers. But Peter says, be clear-minded and sober simply so that you can pray. Be realistic and your eyes open about this life and the next. Think clearly and soberly about your lives from God's perspective, from an eternal perspective, think clearly so that you can pray, so you can talk to God. Paul tells husbands to live graciously and understandingly with their lives, honoring them. And I would have finished that verse so that your marriage is healthy or maybe not that one. I, I would have probably said so that God doesn't discipline you or so that you can exemplify the gospel to the unbeliever. But Paul says, do that so that your prayers are not hindered. Later, he tells husbands and wives in Corinth to not withhold sexual intimacy from one another. But he has this exception. He says, except for an agreed upon time so that you can give yourselves to fasting and to prayer. So here's this expectation in this young church that couples would get away from one another, but really for only one reason, to pray fast for an extended period of time. In the Lord's Prayer, we get a little bit more hints about how often we're supposed to be in prayer besides the unceasing, which does seem like we got to do some figuring out really how that works because I got to work, I got to drive, I, you know, I got to figure out a way to pray and, you know, it's the, it's the biblical multitask. But, but in the Lord's Prayer, we see this phrase, give us this day our daily bread. 
So by extension, all the other categories that we're to ask for, God's glory, God's kingdom, God's will, our forgiveness, our protection from the demonic and from temptation to sin is is obviously supposed to be a meaningful and daily habit. So if Jesus commanded us to pray meaningfully for these things, and if you just quote the Lord's Prayer meaningfully, or you unpack it at each categorical stage, and either one is legitimate, it's obvious Jesus wants those words to be real words from our hearts so that we have to focus enough to make them real, to honor the Lord and to really hold on. But, but if he says for us to do that daily, why would we think that yesterday's or last week's prayer would be sufficient to God? He's telling us, is God going to be a jerk? No. But is God expecting that each day we're going to come to him meaningfully in prayer for our needs? Absolutely. Absolutely. David said in Psalm 5, early in the morning, I lay my requests before you and wait in expectation. Do you see how full and beautiful this picture is? Listen to that again. Early in the morning, I lay my requests before you and wait in expectation. David rises up early before the world gets to him. He gets alone with God and he pours out his heart, his pleas. And then, though he stops those specific prayers, presumably he moves on to to other things, other people, other duties, other responsibilities. His heart posture is one of remembering those prayers and taking and, and watching God, taking God so seriously that after he brings his request to God, he spends the rest of the day watching for their answer. He doesn't just leave his prayers in, in the journal and then forget about it. He spends his day with a posture of watching and waiting. It's beautiful. Again, my, my point is that though we don't get detailed instructions, we see a picture of hearts full of prayer in God's word. We see a picture that this is what God wants of us. We see a picture of God as the priority above all priorities. We see a picture of the people of God called to listen to him in his word and talk to him all the time. As if God, it's, it's almost as if God really was supposed to be our most important relationship. I mean, it's crazy, right? <laughs> it's almost like the, the, that it's serious when Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength and have no other gods before him. And it's almost like he really means that. <laughs> I mean, I'm being, you know, Schmarky, schmarzy, whatever the word is. But, but it, it, that's what the expectation, that's, what the, that's where the end zone is. That's where we're supposed to be going. Okay, so that's number two, that prayer and reflection on God's word are implicitly commanded everywhere in the Bible. Number three, the sustained embrace of the gospel necessitates sustained reflection on the gospel. The sustained embrace of the gospel, of the truths about Jesus, necessitates sustained reflection on the gospel. Let me try to explain what I mean. One of the great tensions we have to battle with when it comes to spiritual disciplines is the tension between like seeing the good, embracing the good of spiritual disciplines like a daily devotional life 
and yet not putting our hope in a devotional life. Like we are saved not by a devotional life, but by Jesus. Jesus famously rebukes the religious leaders who were full of Bible study and yet were empty of God. This is really crucial to see. In John 5, Jesus says to the Pharisees or the religious elite, he says, you study the scriptures diligently. They weren't fooling around. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them, you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So this is super scary. God isn't impressed with your religion. Not even your quiet times. He's not impressed. In fact, it's possible to be a diligent student of the Bible and have no spiritual life. And I think there are at least two remedies for this. Two cautionary tales, but encouragements for us. One is to recognize the real nature and the real purpose of spiritual disciplines like prayer and devotion to God's word. Like recognize what they really are and what they aren't. Your devotional life is, is a means. It's not the end. It's a bridge. It's not the destination. It's a fork. It's not the steak. Your devotional life is meant to position you to experience something else greater than reading and greater than asking. It's meant to position you to experience God. It's not meant to earn you badges at Awana. If we have a, a check the box off, prove my religiosity to myself or to others mentality, instead of a desire to know and experience God to the degree that God will allow, we are making an idol out of our spirituality. And that kind of heart posture will always lead to pride or to a joyless tyranny. So we, we have to be really careful not when we talk about things like this. And I think it's one of the reasons why there isn't a specific instruction, set of instructions. It's more about a heart posture way of life. But we have to be really careful when we talk about things like devotions and quiet times and prayer and Bible study that we don't exchange the gospel of salvation by grace for the gospel of salvation by quiet time. Because devotions are so important and they're so helpful and they're so healthy when they're rightly pursued. And God does so much with devotions. But man, we can get this wrong and make a big mess. I remember a season years ago when I got so hung up on my quiet time that I was wiped out with God. It was, it was like, it was like I, I was addicted to it. It was like cigarettes. Did I have my quiet time? Did I have my quiet time? Like that was, that was in my mind all the time. I got to have my quiet time. It was crazy. And I felt the joy of the Lord just evacuate my life. And, and you, you know when I started to feel it return? When I, I just insisted to myself that I, I have to stop having quiet times for a little bit. <laughs> like I, I had to 
pull back from it, not because it was wrong to have a, a specific quiet time in the morning, but because suddenly over time, my devotional life had replaced Jesus as my savior. Can any of you guys kind of relate to that? I mean, I would rather us, you pray, and I, I, I imagine that Jesus would too, although I, I don't want to quote him, but I would rather have us say a 20-second daily prayer of true dependence on Jesus and his blood and his righteousness, like 20 seconds while eating a Twinkie the whole time. I'd rather have us do that than like two days a week of sincere fasting and prayer while either patting ourselves on the back for our holiness or anxiously, desperately trying to earn God's favor. If we can just recognize that spiritual disciplines like prayer and the word do not represent our rowing the boat of our salvation with our strong arms pulling the oars across the river of life, but rather they express us just gently lifting those sails of our little boat so that the great wind of the Holy Spirit can blow into our prayers and into our meditations. We'll position ourselves to have a much more healthy devotional life. And we'll see things much, much better. And we won't lose our minds when we miss our quiet time. And we won't build a little altar to ourselves out of our prayer journals. And we won't be afraid to evangelize spontaneously to that person at the grocery store, crippled in fear because we missed the chapter of the gospel of real life that we promised our accountability partner we'd read today. We'll just be like, oh, Jesus' blood. Okay, God, I need your help right now. <laughs> I blew it this morning. It's been a terrible day. I looked at my phone for an hour. It was wrong. I completely blew you off. It was mean and selfish. And now I need grace to talk to this lady about you. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus, for your blood. So we have to have the right perspective that they are means, they're not the end. But secondly, another way to guard against this kind of salvation by quiet time mentality is to make sure that much of the focus of your quiet time is where God wants the focus of your quiet time, which is on the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ and his gospel. So we want to be careful to, to make sure that the gospel of God's grace and the blood of his son poured out for the forgiveness of our sins is not like, you know, when you get the Swanson TV dinners. Oh my gosh, I'm so old. Not that you're old, but you got me on the, what was it, the other thing. So I don't remember because of my kids. But what, yeah, yeah, we already forgot. We have no short-term memories. But the, the Swanson TV dinners would be like, they'd have this big Salisbury steak or my favorite was fried chicken. It was so good. Then you'd have mashed potatoes over here. You'd have peas and carrots right here. And then over here, you'd have like the little cranberry thing, little cakey dessert thing. But the, the peas and the carrots got short shrift, of course, because mashed potatoes with butter and then fried chicken and then the cranberry treat, so good. But the peas and the carrots, sometimes there were lima beans. That was a death knell for that little section for me all the time. We gotta make sure that the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ does not end up like those lima beans that we get to the fried chicken of whatever great book on, you know, elimination of hurry, you know, or really good John Piper sermon on missions. And, and then at the end, every once in a while, we'll get to like, oh yeah, Jesus died for me. 
and I need a savior and I have a savior, you know, maybe I remember that, but that's old, I remember that. No, 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 don't do that. Because we're commanded not to do that, not because gospel centrality used to be really cool and now it's maybe not as cool as being mindful, but hey, it was cool 10 years ago, so no, 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 whether it's cool or uncool, we got to the Bible and recognize that we're called to focus more than anything else in our hearts on the gospel and what Jesus Christ has done for us. When Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, he means centrally, let the word about Jesus and his salvation, no offense to the Ten Commandments, they have their place, but they're Their main purpose is to drive us to despair of ourselves so that we can flee to Jesus and his blood for his forgiveness, so that we can live lives full of the Holy Spirit, not our abilities, and live lives of thanksgiving and hope in what Jesus has done for us and does for us and will do for us. So he gets the glory and we get joy and rest. When the author of Hebrews says, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away He's not talking about Deuteronomy. He's not talking about Dallas Willard's Celebration of Disciplines book, classics, though it may or may not be. He's talking about the message of Jesus in his salvation, that through hope in him and his blood and his covenant that's better than any covenant that's indestructible in its faithfulness, we would have hope and we would keep our minds on that and keep going back to that and not neglect it to the destruction of our souls. That's what he's saying. We can't neglect it. He's saying we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. And he means what we have heard about Jesus, who he is and what he has done for us. If we don't hold on to that, we will drift away. When Paul says to the Colossians, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He's telling them the gospel, what God has done for them, where their hope is. And then he says this, that's all happened to you, past tense. It's a done deal. But then he says this weird thing about it. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Do you see what God is doing again and again? He's telling us again and again and again that true saving faith, when it's true, when it's real, it lasts. It lasts. We're saved by grace through faith. But true saving faith lasts. It perseveres. God's people who are really his people hold on to the truth. They don't stop believing in Christ and give up or minimize or marginalize or dishonor his saving work for them. They keep their hope on it. And If you don't do that, it's a dire sign. It's a great sobering warning to you. John says of those who gave up on Christ after first showing that 
outward faith of the sinner's prayer at the FCA meeting or wherever it was. And thank God for those moments of salvation. But this is what he says. They came to us. They said they were part of us. But then he says they went out from us. And he says, why did they go out from us? They went out for us because they, they were not of us. For if they had been one of us, if they had really been born again, they would not have left us. They would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So holding on to the truth of the gospel is not optional. Gospel centrality is not a theological fad. And so there's a tension here, right? Like, didn't you say we're saved by grace through faith? And God is the one who preserves us? Yes. But he does so by giving us new hearts that really respond to his command to hold on to him. Meaning we, through his grace, but we really do. And this is getting into God's sovereignty, human responsibility stuff, right? So there's tension, there's mystery, but it's, both things are true. By God's grace, we really do make a willful decision to keep holding on to the hope of Christ in the gospel and not give up on Jesus. And so my point is, we have a responsibility to devote ourselves to dependence on Christ and him crucified. And this responsibility both necessitates and calls for your devotion to the truth and paying attention to the truth and holding on to the truth. And not just truth generically, not just truth about the whole Bible, but specifically about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done for us, the saving message of the cross in the resurrection. And here's what's beautiful about this. In our devotions, the message that we're called to focus on and keep central and not give up on, it destroys legalism and pride and putting your hope in the devotions you're having. <laughs> we devote ourselves to a message that says we're not saved by our devotion. You see what I'm saying? We have quiet times about a savior who says to us, you're not saved by your quiet time. So it's, 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 it self-defeats legalism. It self-defeats tyranny of spiritual disciplines. You see my point? That, that, that's why some of the most glorious quiet times I've ever had are the ones where it's been too long since I've had my quiet time. I feel super lousy about my spiritual performance. I feel super afraid of demands and failures and sins and inside and out pressures. Yet I, I get to look straight in the face of my Savior and boldly hear him say to me, this is a free gift. You're not saved by what you do. You never were, you never will be. Rely on me, rely on me, rely on what I've done. You're not made acceptable because yesterday's performance was good. You're not rejected because yesterday's performance was bad. You're made acceptable because of my son. Rely on him, rely on him. And come, come, what do you need? Come, come. I feel like honestly, some of the best days I've had with God 
are on the heels of the worst things I've done. (laughs) What joy, what freedom to come to your quiet time in your prayers and your Bible and have God whisper, it's not about what you do for me, did for me, or will do for me. It's not about your quiet time or your Bible study or prayer. It's about my son's blood. So let's meditate on that. Let's hope in that. Let's pray on that ground. I have more. I'm going to stop here and we'll pick it up after my vacation. (laughs) I am going away and if you see me on Facebook, you should report me to the authorities, at least to Mike Steele, because one of my plans is to un-whatever, unplug, yeah. So, one more point, and we'll, we'll meld this into some more practical instruction about this next time, but let me pray for us, and, and we'll, we'll let you guys go. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have a healthy, reasonable, right for each one of us in our situations and in our demands. Help us, Lord. You know what each of us should be doing, and you know what each of us really shouldn't be doing. You know what to ask each of us for where we are in our station in life, in our singleness or marriedness, in our jobs that require us to get to work this time. You you know where each of us are in our maturity levels with you. So Lord, would you just, through your Holy Spirit, speak to each one of us about how we're to steward this amazing opportunity to get away from everything if we can and everybody, Lord willing, we can a little bit each day and just be with you and just talk with you and get with the one who wants to be with us more than we want to be with him. And to get with the one who gets down on his knees and takes our feet in his hands and washes them. You amazing servant-hearted Savior and God, please invite us into your embrace in this particular way, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.